No matter how hard you work and how much you succeed, what makes you feel that you'll never reach your ideal version of you? The seeds of your inner gremlin are planted early on in your childhood experience, building that foundation of self-doubt and need to fulfill unnecessary expectations. I'm Dr. Jessica Metcalf, and this is Speak Kindly, You're Listening. And we've come to the end of the first season. Woo! This season has brought some incredible women together, and I hope you have learned a lot because I most definitely have. I really want to share with you what will be coming out next year, but you'll just have to wait a little bit longer. Next season will air March 2023. In addition, Speak Kindly, You're Listening book club starts January 10th, and you won't want to miss out on that. It's totally free to join. Once a week for four weeks, we will talk about each part of the book, breaking down imposter syndrome, perfectionism, burnout, and darkness. You can find the book on Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and Barnes & Noble. Without further ado, with me today is Alison Shammer, an imposter syndrome expert, coach, and speaker, media contributor, and former technology leader. Through her work, Alison empowers global audiences with the knowledge, tools, and methods grounded in neuroscience they need to overcome imposter syndrome, build unshakable confidence, and achieve the success they desire and deserve. A proud member of the LGBTQIA community, Allison is passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is on the board of directors of a marketing technology company. She combines both lived experience and professional expertise to help her clients make transformative change. On today's episode, Allison and I will be chatting about how she has quieted her inner gremlin and why creating a trustworthy community of support will remind you that you are not alone. Here we go. Allison, thank you so much for being here on Speak Kindly, You're Listening. It First off, we met via social media a few years ago now, and we've stayed in touch, and we both talk about very similar topics, the overarching theme of imposter syndrome. So thank you for taking time to be here and share your expertise and your stories today. Uh, my pleasure, Jess, and I'm so happy the social media gods connected us, I think about two years ago. I love following your work. And firstly, congratulations on this podcast and your book and all of your amazing work. And yeah, I'm super excited to be here having this chat today. Oh, thank you so much. So diving right into things, I know one of the reasons why I started teaching others and coaching on imposter syndrome was because of how I had experienced it. So when we take a look at that inner voice and how we choose to speak to ourselves, that inner gremlin voice I like to call, is there a prominent time in your life where that voice was really loud or you noticed imposter syndrome was just so prominent? Yeah. So for me, there was, I guess if I reflect, there are kind of three major, I guess we'll call it milestones of that sort of voice and what I now know um, and did know, learn about nine years ago, you know, was imposter syndrome and was, you know, that inner critic voice and and those sorts of things. And the first time really was when I was in my early 20s, so which unfortunately is a little while ago now, but I was in my early 20s and I was actually in my, I think my second job out of, you know, business college and and that sort of thing. And I had an unfortunate experience where at a young age I had a, a bully boss who was a man and um, and that was a tough time. But it was during that time and when I was essentially getting bullied by this boss at work 
that I really felt that inner voice creep up and what I now know was my first bout of imposter syndrome, which is how it came out in me. And then there was another bout a few uh, toward the end of my 20s, which really was quite dramatic and changed the course of my life because it's what led me to become the expert in imposter syndrome that I am today. So that was when I had a big career transition. I went from working in my previous life as a sort of leader um, in the corporate world, went, jumped from working in three years in media and publishing, which was excellent in a very senior role, and went back to working in technology. And although being qualified, headhunted for the role, leading a team, working for a large American software company and ticking all the boxes, essentially, I had a a major bout of uh, imposter syndrome driven by that voice in my head and the negative thoughts that were were flowing. And then the third time, um, just quickly, was at the beginning of 2019 when I started my own business. And that was the first time, yeah, running my own business, stepping into entrepreneurship as well, and it came back. So for me, it has come in sort of major bouts or hubs throughout my life and career, as opposed to being there every day or, or every month. So I know we all have our own unique experience. And when I did the self-work, and I know we might dive into this today, I realized that for me, the roots of that really were in something that happened to me when I was a child. And I was abandoned by my mother and went through some quite traumatic things as a young girl and you know without chewing up too much airtime now although I'm happy to explore based on what you want you know to chat about today but when I did the self-work I realized that that was really the seed of that uh, what you call inner gremlin or that inner critic or that voice in my head that really started to question was I good enough was I worthy enough and and really that's what manifested into imposter syndrome later in life so I know that was a bit of a longer answer but I thought share the context on those three different journeys because I was a little bit older, I was a bit wiser, I had career changes, I was growing up as a young woman and business person and I think it's important for people to know that as we change, sometimes the experience changes along with us personally but also what's going on in our environment as well. Thank you for pointing that out because I don't think people realise that it can keep coming up and in different ways and look a little bit different each and every single time. Because you cracked open that seed for us, do you mind sharing a little bit more about, because I think that we take for granted at times that, oh, it's just this one experience that's happening, but then we don't necessarily do that self-work to unpack that seed or really start to figure out so then we're not hitting repeat on those same old habits. So do you mind when you were doing that self-work and you figured out what that seed was. Do you mind going into a little bit more with that? No, I appreciate you asking. I think I'm a lot more comfortable today, you know, these days to talk mm-hmm. about it without getting too, you know, too emotional because I think it always can take you back to that place, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes it's not a great thing. Um, no, I'm, I'm happy to share it and I think it's it's important. I think for me, so I, I guess to, you know, to sort of keep it to our time today, but just give the listeners some real context is I, I grew up in a family and I had two older brothers. I was the youngest. My parents went through a really horrible uh, divorce when I was four years old, which is a really critical time. So for those of you, and I know Jessica, you know, you're, you're a doctor and done a wonderful, um, you know, training throughout your, your careers as well. But, you know, we have these critical periods in you know, brain development and childhood development and through adolescent years. And uh, my parents had a horrible divorce between the, when I was between the ages of four and six. And um, although I was quite shielded from that, 
my mother was, uh, let's just say, the bad person in the divorce. And throughout my younger years, my mother caused me a lot of uh, trauma in various ways. And then she abandoned us and literally disappeared for a few months. And then she came back and fought for custody of me, but not my brothers. And so she tore apart our family and she basically turned her back on her own sons. And of course, that did a lot of damage to them in different ways, my brothers. and uh, But she fought for me because I was very close to my father and my brothers and she essentially used me as the pawn um, to hurt my father. So she never really wanted custody of me, but she took me away from him. And I know this now as an adult looking back, but this is what was going on, right? So I didn't know the full concept as a child. But um, anyway, long story short, she won custody of me. She took me out of my family home. I had to change schools, all of these things. Uh, and that was very hard. And then what was the worst part is that she wasn't a great mother at all. She um, neglected me, always put me second, would work long hours. She married um, for a second time. He was an awful human being. And I had to deal with a lot of abuse growing up in, in a lot of different facets, really at the hands of her and a stepfather and a whole bunch of other not so great stuff. So when I was doing the self-work and sort of unpacking that, what what I realized is that I had become a perfectionist child or teenager. And the reason why I had become a perfectionist, so which I'm a recovering perfectionist now, I just put that out there. And I think we could laugh about that because I've got it under control now. But I sort of lent on perfectionism very early because throughout a period in my life, I thought that if I just did things really well, played sports really well, made friends really well, performed at school really well, that my mother would actually give a shit. Can I, oops, I think I just swore, sorry. <laughs> All's um, good. I welcome it. Yeah. So, you know, I thought that it would mean that she would actually, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to say, give, give a shit about me, give me the attention that I wanted, give me the love that I wanted. And, and even though it was an abusive relationship, I was just, I guess I was just so desperate for n- normality at the time. Um, and I thought if I was just perfect, I would capture her attention. And that, that didn't go that way, right? And then as I grew up, those perfectionist tendencies stayed with me. And they weren't in every aspect of my life, but they were on the things that I really set my mind to. And I was very harsh on myself and I held myself to a very high standard. I became very self-critical. And that actually caused me caused me to develop quite a severe eating disorder when I was uh, between the ages of 17 and 19 because I was desperately trying to control everything and then I desperately trying to control myself. And I had this voice in my head telling me, you've got to do more, you've got to raise the bar, you've got to be perfect, you've got to look this certain way. And it all kind of just manifested into this dark storm cloud that hovered over me in so many ways. And then when I became an adult, which is usually when we're in those later teen years or sort of entering, you know, adulthood you know or uh, ending high school going into college or whatever we're doing is it started to manifest as imposter syndrome in that first job that I was talking about which actually for me was my early 20s so I started working part-time when I was 19 whilst I was finishing business college which is what I did here in Australia instead of going to university I did a business degree in a different way and it was working part-time and then hit the workforce full-time and out came that first bout of imposter syndrome. So that's a bit about my story. And then so unpacking it all, I realised the seed was planted from my mother. Of course, it wasn't my fault. That's where my perfectionism, which was my form of self-sabotage, that that inner voice was driving me to do, be, act like, came from. And then when I started to get a handle on it, I realised that it was self-destructive, that the only person pushing myself to be perfect was me. My 
friends didn't need me to be perfect, my broader network and confidence, clients, work colleagues, nobody expected me to be perfect. The perfectionism was all in my head. It was all in my expectation and measurement of competence in my own mind. And so when I started to unpack that, I realised that that inner voice driving me this unrelenting standard was a liar (laughs) and was, um, I can laugh about it now, right? But I just realized that it was so unhealthy and it was keeping me stressed out and it was the negative talk was awful and the negative talk is what, and that voice and that inner gremlin, as you call it, you know, drives how we continue to think. It drives our behavior. It drives how we accept or don't accept our achievements. And this is the thing about all of my fellow perfectionists or recovering perfectionists who might be listening to this is that you'll all know that even when we get what we want, even if we've driven ourselves in the ground to get it, we discount it anyway because we tell ourselves, well, you should have gotten it, You're ex- you know, you need to be perfect or so what if you got it, set the bar higher next time, work harder, make more money, get a different degree, right, get extra honours, whatever the situation is. So the, the irony is that even if we, by some miracle, hit what we deem as perfection, we don't actually take it in anyway because we're, we're being nasty to ourselves so that's a little bit about my journey I realize that not everybody's um seed a lot of people's is planted in childhood in different ways and it's not always something as traumatic as mine was so for anyone listening to this don't think you have to go through trauma and neglect for the seed to be planted but you know it is common but unpacking that helped me Jess I think I've shared that so knowing the origin helped me not because I needed to sit in it for years but just because it made sense it helped me connect the dots. I know you are too, Jess, with your training and education. I'm a data-driven, logical person. If I can make sense of it, if I can draw the line, if I can connect the dots, solve the puzzle, I will. And that really helped me put my pieces together and go, aha, and give it some clarity. And then that was a great framework for me to keep moving forward. Yeah. This hits so close to home for me when you're describing those perfectionist tendencies, because that takes me right back to moments in time, moving through my own trauma and trying to figure out, okay, the unpacking and the layer after layer after layer. I want to go back because you had mentioned when you started to recognize what was happening and you paid attention to that inner voice, it was that sabotaging behavior. But as a kid growing up, A form of that perfectionism was a part of protecting yourself because of the environment that you were in. When did you give yourself permission or when did you then see the shift from it going from this is no longer serving me? Yes, it protected me for a period of time, but now I'm sabotaging myself. When was that period and what stood out for you? So that period was nine years ago when I had my what I call the second major bout of imposter syndrome because what happened was, again, in my previous life as a technology leader until I left the corporate world in 2019, so this was back in 2013. So I'd stepped into this senior technology role I mentioned before and what had happened was is I'd had a major bout of imposter syndrome at work and it caused me to have an extreme panic attack. And the attack was like it came on so quickly. So I was getting ready that to go into a big meeting that afternoon. I was leading a, a team of a men out of the Sydney office. We worked for a large American software company. The fact I was the only woman wasn't the problem. My team were great, but we were heading into this really big, you know, intricate meeting with a client. It was highly technical. And despite having all the pieces in a row and me getting ready to lead the team into this big meeting, all of the pressure of the region 
were on us at the time because the South, um, you know, the Australia-Asian region that we were in just quickly was under pressure in terms of had been under budget. So this deal that we were looking to close and essentially I was leading was under the microscope. All eyes, you know, of the company were on us and I felt a lot of pressure. And it was that sort of shift that made um, that inner voice start really peppering me one day and I was literally pacing around the office all day. The meeting was in the afternoon and that inner voice got louder and louder. And I, I've shared this in some of my keynotes, but literally what that inner voice was saying to me was this. It kept saying, this is the meeting, Alison. This is the meeting where they're all going to find out you have no idea what you've been talking about. You're going to blow this deal for the company. That was literally running through my head over and over like all day. And I'm pacing around the office. And then what happened was anxiety went up and up and up. And I was like, oh, my God. And I had but bolt out of the office across the main reception floor and into the bathrooms and I had an extreme panic attack. And for anyone listening to this who's you know, had a panic attack, you'll know that it is so frightening. You know, it takes a lot to rattle me. I've been through a lot in my life and I do consider myself a very resilient person, a very strong person, but I've never been. It was one of those fearful moments, honestly, pure fear of I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was sweating profusely through my shirt. I couldn't control my breath. I was hunched over in the cubicle, the walls of the toilet cubicle, you know, when they were like closing in on me. Mm. I, I thought I was going to black out. And I'll never forget that day because it was so extreme. But that was the catalyst because I was like, what the hell is happening to me? And at the time, I did have a high pressure role. So I actually thought that I was having a mental breakdown. Mm. And and I, I thought, gosh, I've been under stress for too long. I'm, you know, all these things are combining. I'm having a breakdown. That's that's what I thought. I didn't recognize it as a panic attack. I thought I'm, I'm really breaking down here. <laughs> that's like sort of the craziest part of that story, though. But it's just that I literally still had to lead my team, like into that meeting <laughs> as as well. So I had to pull it together. Anyway, it was a crazy time. We use the term crazy, you know, loosely, obviously in in, in jest, but. That was a catalyst. So fast forward when I took myself home that night, the anxiety was still through the roof. I was trying to calm myself down. That was the beginning of the journey of what's wrong with me? How can I seek help? And that was when I went on the, you know, the rabbit hole, which is Google doctor, you know, and the internet. <laughs> and literally, like, yeah. literally, I tell this story in my keynotes, right? And I still laugh, but literally like that, I know a lot of you can't see me, I'm like doing the action of madly typing on the keyboard, you know, <laughs> like, a cra- like a crazy person going, What's happening, what's happening, again, using the word crazy in, in sort of jest, you know, in media humour today. But um, I was, the perfectionist tendencies were coming out. I'm like, I need to fight what's wrong with it. Where is it? I'm going to hunt down. I'm going to read every piece of research. And eventually I actually came across the the original study and the work of Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Susan Imes, who, who were the psychologists who coined the term imposter phenomenon back in the 1970s. And it was when I started reading that that I'm like, this is what I think is happening to me, like, I'm in the best career, I'm earning money, I'm on a career high, like everything's good and yet I feel like I'm fooling everyone. I literally feel like my boss is going to call me because he was in Japan at the time. He wasn't that nice either, but that's another story. But I literally thought he was going to call me from Japan to the, you know, the Sydney office and be like, Alison, you, you're out. We gave the job to the wrong person. Like this was a, I'm laughing about it now, but I know many of you were listening to see it was a real and debilitating fear. It was, a, it was a real, like, living on the edge all the time. You know, the phone would ring and you'd get an email from your boss. I'm like, is this the one where he's like, you shouldn't be here? I know that was a bit of a long-winded answer again, Jess, but I feel it's important to, like, 
give the context as well, right, because there's so much context around the stories that we tell mm-hmm. and I think people can relate to that. But that was the catalyst. So I was like, I have to fix this. I knew what was wrong with me. I knew I was experiencing imposter syndrome or phenomenon as it was known and then I went on the hunt the other way of, well, why? Why am I feeling this way? What can I do about it? Again, come the perfectionist um, or just sort of wanting knowledge, wanting logic, desperately seeking answers, right? As I said before, trying to put the pieces together. Well, how can I fix myself? Who can I seek for help? What can I read? Because, you know, ultimately I turn my focus to, okay, I know what the problem is, but what can I do about it? And so that's when I went on the hunt with all my own research and journey. And then I also spoke to some mentors. I got a career coach. And so I didn't seek people who were specifically helping me with my imposter syndrome because they weren't around me at the time. But what I was doing was educating myself but then taking my confidence issues that had fallen or my uh, self-sabotaging behaviours and working with my coaches. So they were coaching me through how to release those behaviours and be a successful businesswoman, and that was helping mitigate the imposter syndrome, which I was reading about in my own time and obviously talking you know, talking and sharing my true views. But that's how it all came together. So it, it sounds dramatic. <laughs> it's a bit dramatic in some ways, but... That day nine years ago literally changed the course of my life because I'm here today and doing the work I've been doing on imposter syndrome and, you know, and all our self-sabotaging behaviours, et cetera, and have been for three years and what, you know, led us to meet Jess because after helping people in my corporate world, I was like, I need to help other people. I need to spread the message on this. I, I you know, need to coach and help and speak on this and help alleviate people from this. That was the big one. Mm-hmm. So that that was the big shift, and uh, and here I am, sort of three years into my own business, and um, meeting great people like you around the world, and really spreading that. We're like evangelists, aren't we? Like we just we need people to hear about this. You know, the inner critic, the imposter syndrome. It's what you and I are passionate about because we need people to understand they're not alone. We need people to know that there is a pathway through this. That you yeah. all have a unique story, right? That we can own our story and still go on and uh, recreate that narrative, make sure we're saying good things to ourselves and make sure we're not sabotaging our success or our potential. Because when I think about the amount of people around the world right now who are held back by their inner critic, held back by imposter syndrome, held back by perfectionism or some other self-sabotaging behaviour, I just think, can you imagine a world if those people weren't held back? Like, can you imagine the world of business, of coaching, of speaking, of dentistry, yeah. of, of medicine, of, like, if the, these people weren't holding themselves back, like entrepreneurship? I mean, I just think, wow, that's why I'm really passionate about spreading this message and helping people through this. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was giving a workshop, and at the end of it, the woman raised her hand and said, this is what I've been living through for the past 25 years. So mm. you just saying that being what if there was no self-sabotaging? What if, like, where would you be if you gave yourself the opportunity to step into that success and acknowledge those capabilities? Yeah. When you were talking about the comparison of traumas and unpacking where that seed components or the multiple seeds that we instill, I want to highlight that again, because I think that people automatically assume, okay, well, my trauma is not as bad as so-and-so's trauma, so I shouldn't feel this way. But that's not the case because 
when we're developing and when our emotions and our psyche take up certain experiences and turn memories into long-term memories, we don't know what's going to sink down into there and really affect us from a long-term perspective. So when you go back to that panic attack, because I I feel like I can relate to that moment in time immensely. Do you think, though, you have to get to a period of time, whether it's burnout or self-sabotage that is so abrupt and prominent that then you decide a change has to happen? Like, do we have to get to that point? I think some of us get in my experience as well, this is coming from people that I've seen, women that I've coached, and also just my personal views of the conversations I've had around the world, I believe that some of us get to that point because we don't see the signs early enough or because we ignore the signs or because we don't realise that imposter syndrome or the inner critic taking over and self-sabotage through self-talk again and those sorts of things that we're talking about today or chronic self-doubt and they feel that they're alone. So they believe it's only happening to them, so they are reluctant to speak about it. They might feel it makes them too vulnerable. So we suffer in silence is the Mm -hmm. takeaway, and then we come crashing down. So I feel that we're seeing a shift on that. So I think for some of us, Jess, yes, we do come crashing down, and it is our wake-up call. And, look, for me it was the panic attack, and as frightening as the panic attack was, I just want to be clear with the listeners as well, is because it was a horrific experience, the panic attack, but I will not call that for me, that wasn't trauma. The trauma for me came when I was a young girl and, and some abuse mm-hmm. that I suffered. And I want to be clear because I know people listening to this have been because trauma is trauma. If any of you have been through trauma, it is relevant. Your tra- trauma, if you want to talk about it, needs needs to be heard. And, and trauma is a is in a very big bucket over here. And I just want everyone to be clear that I'm not saying having a panic attack put me in trauma. The trauma come from when I was a young girl. The panic attack was just, yeah, a horrible experience on its own. But if you're somebody who's been through a traumatic upbringing, to Jess's point, like, your trauma is relevant. Your story is relevant. Please don't go down the path of thinking, oh, but it's not as bad as the other person or it is or it isn't. Your story just has merit and, you know, is powerful on its own. So definitely don't compare yourselves and then because we can get stuck in those nasty comparison cycles as well. Unfortunately, because we live in a busy world, especially driven by um, high-performing high tenancies, sometimes we do need, uh, I'll call it the crash in inverted commas, to, for the wake-up call. But I do see that shifting as people like you and I elevate the conversation around these things, use our networks, you know, other experts around the world. As we start to educate more, as we start to spread the message more, more and more people are seeing the signs earlier, more and more people are speaking up or owning it or seeking the help of clinically trained medical professionals, experts, expert coaches, people who are qualified to help them. And so rather than the crash happening or guarantee to happen, we're st- I'm starting to see, and I'm curious to see if like, people catch it earlier, but it depends on what you do for a living, which I'll highlight because, I mean, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to school you on this, Jess, because you come up through a medical system and, you know, the pressures of going through those clinical training. And, and so the environment in which you work and the expectation that is put on you that is without of your control, I'm talking about systemic cultures, I'm talking about other workplace policies or expectations or poor leadership that's in play can push you to have to act and be a certain way to almost survive in that, right? So those sorts of environments are more prone to burnout. So then the links to the clinically mental health conditions, burnout, 
uh, depression, um, addiction, anxiety. So all of us who experience imposter syndrome or struggle with our inner critic suffer an element of anxiety, but there's a difference between anxious feelings and having clinically diagnosed anxiety. So, you know, if we can push those thresholds. So some of us, due to our nature, just the environment that we're in, how we've been trained, how we've come through school, what we do, sometimes need to come crashing down as the wake-up call. It's not ideal, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's needed. But I do think we're seeing a shift. And I think being on this podcast right now, you know, your amazing book, the work that you do, like people are hearing this, you know, and they're going, right, I know I'm in this cycle right now. I want to do something because I don't want to come crashing down. I don't want to spend two weeks in bed. I don't want to go on medication. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, we're doing all the prelim work. So I think we're starting to catch it more and more. And I think it'll come down to the environment. Hopefully that's helpful for everyone listening to this. But assess your environment. Assess the expectation you're working under. Are you driving yourself to the bone or is your workplace culture demanding you basically kill yourself to work there? And uh, pardon the dramatic expression, but uh, I know there are cultures out there where they expect you to be chained to the clinic floor or chained to the desk in the office or to be answering emails at 1am. And uh, that's got to change as well. And that's certainly not going to help you. In fact, it's going to light a fire on you if you're already struggling with your inner critic or experiencing imposter syndrome or chronic self-doubt or some other fear that's impacting you in the workplace. The environment in which you operate in is a huge factor to either allowing you to move through it or triggering you over and over, which is just something you need to take account of as well. I'm so glad you brought up the culture aspect of it because... I know I'm preaching to the converted there, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I've got some stories for you, Ali. Grab the coffee. <laughs> my own story that I kept telling myself over and the mental model that I had created for myself was just amplified because of the, that culture that I was in. But then it's so fascinating because... After I did all of the internal work, and this is where my next question is going to come from, once you do all the internal work and something still isn't working, that's when you get to start to assess your environment. Because whether it's the people, it's the culture at work, it's the job itself, whatever it is. So my question to you is when someone has done all of the internal work and they feel like they've done a lot of their own healing, they've made those changes and it didn't happen overnight because this doesn't happen overnight. It takes months of work to be able to put in. When does someone then get to start to evaluate their environment? Mm. I think literally you've just covered it when they get to the point where they feel like they've done an appropriate level of self-work or at least, yes, spent that time doing self-awareness, asking themselves questions, looking, seeking information, whether it's free or paid from people that they believe that can help them and just confiding in people they trust, sort of communicating that and doing whatever they would like to do to kind of assess that and then start taking in the environmental factors because Something that I'm very careful on with my clients is, yes, when we've done that self-work or they come to me, you know, to coach them through these things, they get to a point where, yes, we know that they've done the self-work and what we don't want, and I'm sure, I'm not trying to speak for you, Jess, but I'm pretty confident you'd agree with this, is once you've done enough self-work, what I don't want you to do is then still move to self-blame. So there is a point where you get to the line and you need to say, and we can help you with this, that actually I've done the self-reflection. I've done the self-work. I've chatted to some people I believe can help me or I've listened to some information I believe can help me. I've taken a moment to sort of process my situation, analyse my behaviour, and I realise that, okay, I'm now at this line and it is my boss or work environment or 
or insert X trigger, whatever is bringing these feelings out, that's actually a problem here. And so we want to catch that line because what can happen is we can get to the line, but then we can still self-blame and we can still go, oh, but have I done enough? Have I really looked? Again, because the voice catch does like then reflects. It's like, should I do more? You know, have I really done enough reflection? Because if you've been sitting in that uh, negative self-talk for a while, you'll talk yourself out of anything great, right? You'll yeah. be on the line where you've done amazing self-talk, but that voice will still come back, can come back for a lot of us and say, oh, yeah, well, you've done the work, but shouldn't you do more? Should you speak to one more person? Can you really believe and trust yourself? You'll start second-guessing yourself, right? And so this is where coaches, mentors, psychologically safe spaces where you can talk to people that you trust, therapists, counsellors, your, your friends, whoever, as long as you can cycle it, as long as they've got a safe space for you, you can trust them. Confiding people that you trust is the big thing here if you need that extra validation. But otherwise, do the self-reflection. Please try and believe in yourself and know that it could be then an environmental circumstance and don't move to self-blame. If it is imposter syndrome, you know, relentless inner critic has taken over, I want you all to know, and again, this is my view, I'm like that it isn't your fault. So none of us woke up and went, aha, I want to be my own worst critic or I want to experience, I'm an imposter. None of us woke up that way. All of us have a story where a circumstance or individual or collection of the both planted a seed in us that created this. It wasn't our fault. We didn't wake up. We didn't choose it. Unfortunately, the bit that sucks, just speaking openly, is we're left to deal with it and to navigate through it. Now, when I say that, deal with it, navigate the bits that are within our control. So we cannot control our boss. We cannot control the potential toxic environment that we work in or the systemic culture that exists in the industry that we've chosen. We can't control that. Sure, we might want to make a genuine, we absolutely want to stand up for ourselves, we might want to take on those things, but you'll take it all on from a better position if you yourself are coming from a position of self-love, coming from a position of confidence, coming from a position of controlling the inner critic, coming from a position of strength because then what happens is you've got the freedom of choice. Do you want to try and tackle those other things? Do you want to take on your environment? It's up to you. You shouldn't feel the pressure to have to. But if you do, you'll have a better shot at it by having done the inner work and controlling the controllables, which are within you, and then determining and having the freedom of choice of saying, do I want to take on my boss? Do I want to tell them this cultural system sucks? Do I want to quit and go work somewhere else? Do I want to spend the next few months hunting down a new job, and when I found it, quit the current one, right? So I've still got the financial security and I can still pay my bills. And But you've got the freedom of choice. And choice is a very powerful thing. When somebody removes your choices, we feel very helpless as an individual. We feel backed into a corner. So take back the control over your choices. That's sort of my view on all of that is it helps us look internally, know when you're on the line, Look for people to help you because sometimes, yes, we're about to back ourselves and, and, and know that it's not us, but you do need people to help you. Mm-hmm. I want to be very clear with everyone that I didn't overcome my own imposter syndrome by myself. Sure, I did a lot of self-work, but I had mentors, great managers I could confide in, friends, partners at the time. I've met great people around the world who, you know, like you, Jess, like I didn't know, none of us do it alone. 
no, no one does this alone. And in fact, just like changing subject, if you just go and read any story of any anyone who's listening to this, anyone that you love or admire, whether they're a sports star, a business person, a doctor, whoever, go and read about their story of success or talk to them if there's someone you can reach out to. They're going to share their journey of success and, and overcoming obstacles and triumph. And that story is not just going to involve them, right? They're, they're yeah. No one's getting to the top on their own. And nobody's coming out of imposter syndrome or a relentless inner critic or chronic self-doubt on their own. And it's okay. We're not designed to go at life alone. We're not, humans are not designed to be solo animals. We're tribal people. So that's a whole other topic. For another <laughs> yeah. but, but I'm just, you know, so because we feel, don't we? we feel like we're going to battle it all on our own. It's like we don't. And that's because we deeply care or we can be ashamed of, of sharing our feelings. So again, I can't come back, you know, coming back to the point of psychological safety, which really means speak to somebody that you trust. Mm-hmm. Speak to some, Whether it's one person, whether it's a group of people, you're part of a group or a network or find people that you trust, start verbalizing what you're thinking and feeling. Because as you know, Jess, and when we verbalize it, we completely change the relationship. If you try to come at it solely in your head, I don't like to speed in absolutes, but 99.9% of the time you will lose the battle because the, the negative thoughts, the habitual patterns, the inner critic is too strong if we just try to battle it in our thoughts like a Yoda Jedi experience. We won't. I'm a Star Wars fan, so I had to drop that analogy. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. You can't battle it in your head. You can't. Again, 99.9% confident you can't seek the help that you need. Verbalize. Let's get out in front of it. I scribbled psychological safety down before you had brought it up again because I had given a speech just over a year ago now. And I actually, it was a speech in a competition. I actually won it. And the thing that makes me laugh is... congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The funniest thing was I was in this initial category where we were talking about mental health and I was talking about finding a trust squad, which gives you that psychological safety. Because when you're navigating that blame and that inner critic, it can be so mean at times that you really need to feel safe sharing those most inner thoughts that you initially thought you were alone in thinking, or you thought someone would think that it's just ridiculous. And why are you thinking that? So you have to create that psychological safety. So I was talking about building a trust squad. And if someone in the audience didn't have a trust squad member, that I could be their trust squad member. I remember sitting in the audience afterwards and the person who went after me took a dig at it and and like totally threw it under the bus and was just like, you need to just talk to everyone. He's like the last person who came up. And I, and I sat there thinking, what are you telling people? Like there's that component when you are in your most deepest, darkest times that you don't have to share with everyone and you get to pick and choose who that person is that you feel comfortable being able to share with. So what would you say to the person who is listening right now who really feels alone because you've mentioned some great individuals to bring on to your team? Who would you recommend or who did you notice for you was kind of those initial people that helped in that process? Great question. And um, gosh, what a... (laughs) I'm still clearly a year later. I'm like, what? No, I'm not going to drop another swear word on this podcast (laughs) about, about what that man did, but wow. 
I know. Especially when you're yeah, talking about your squad and talking about psychological safety and then he gets up and you're not a very smart move on his part. And that's Definitely all not. That's all, I'll say. that's all I'll say about that. Back to your great question. Look, for me, I'm just going to say on this, yeah, psychological safety piece for again because something that happens as well, I, it's, it's funny, not funny. And if you're someone listening to this and you work in a more corporate structure or sort of more business structure or, so, or something like that, but a lot can be said about psychological safety because a lot of businesses or environments or cultures, you know, just spruik the fact that, of course, we're safe. Of course, you can talk to us or you can talk to your manager or you can talk to HR. But when we talk about psychological safety, what we really mean is someone that you truly believe in your heart that you can speak to who will keep your trust who will not repeat what you say. If you're at work, whatever environment you're in right now, and you've got your managers, your HR team, your, uh, I don't know, anyone in your organisation saying, of course you can talk to us, blah, blah, blah. Listen to your gut. Listen to your instincts. If you believe, truly believe that you can trust these people, go for it because all you can do is trust you. But if there's anything in your instinct or your energy that thinks, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm really conscious if I talk to them, then that's probably not the person to speak to. So that's what I'll say up front because we want to make it easy. We want to make it easy. So we want to choose someone where our being, our instinct, our heart just feels like I can talk to this person. That's just something I wanted to put out there firsthand. So don't think just because someone tells you they're safe, but they are. Yeah. You know, if you stop and listen to your intuition, this is regardless of, what gender you are listening to this, however you're identified, doesn't matter. It's just listen to your instinct. Listen to your gut. Do you, do you really feel like you can trust this person? And back to your question, Jess, for me, it was I was very fortunate at the time that my, uh, who's now my wife, but my partner at the time, I could go to and I felt like I could have very, of course, vulnerable conversations, but she knew me, knew my personality, was just able to see things that I couldn't see. And then I went to a couple of close friends as well because I think the epitome of a close friend is they're your confident and they'll listen to you, but they'll also give you a kick up the backside if they think you need it, you know, or they'll say, hey, I actually think you're out of line. I think that's an element of great friendship. And I went to some of my best friends and, you know, we just confide in them, whether I was telling them exactly what I was feeling or I was just getting some other things off my chest, you know, and that made me feel safe. And, again, verbalising it, it lifts a weight off you. I went to people just in my immediate circle and then I also went to a manager at work, someone that I did believe that I could Mm -hmm. trust and I still trust him to this day. I still have a relationship with this man I'm talking about. Again, I didn't talk to him about the exact like imposter feelings but it was like I feel really edgy, you know, I'm stressing about this, I'm scared I'm going to get it wrong, all the other things that were kind of on the peripheral but that gave me enough to get things off my chest. So that's what I would say. And I want to say that it comes down to how you feel about the person as well. So Jess and I met, she, she shared earlier on the internet, which <laughs> 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 sounds, anyway, that's a, it's a great story. So we've been on social media through our mutual work and, and obviously love of speaking about and educating on imposter syndrome, on chronic self-doubt, on inner critic and these things we're talking about today. And when I met Jess, I don't know, it's like whether it's a natural affiliation, it's an energy, and we just started having, didn't we, Jessie's, we came out business, we got talking about what we'd like to do in our personal lives, you know, we have the, we now actually have the same dog, so um, it's just like synergy and serendipity of that, right? And uh, and I started, I don't know, just having really natural chats with Jess, and I'd only met her like a couple of times on the internet, still to this day, you know, I'm in Australia, Jess is in Canada, we've never physically met, 
But I feel like I know her. I feel like I know you. She's here because I'm talking to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hope everyone can get a laugh out of this as well. But there are many people around you is where I'm going with that. So sure, someone you've just met online or whatever it might not be, but you, you know your own situation. You know who you think you can trust or who you think you can talk to. And also, please don't discount, and I know everybody's got different budgets, but please don't discount the value of even just one session with a trained expert coach and speaker and expert in these topics like Jess and I, of course, but other psychologists, therapists, counsellors, psychotherapists, people that you think might be able to help you. And again, I know everyone's got different budgets and those sorts of things, but an investment in yourself even just one session with these individuals or reading their content, going onto their websites, following their social media, listening to their videos can bring you a tremendous amount of comfort. And you can have people in your trust squad. I love that, Jess. This is how I think about it, is that they can be in your trust squad and you might not have actually ever physically met them. Mm -hmm. That's okay, right? You might speak to them in a different way, might have done a webinar with them. There's just different reasons as to why we're drawn to different people. I really believe in energy, and the law of attraction. And again, that's a whole other podcast topic. <laughs> totally. But where I'm going with that is that, as I said, trust your gut, that energy. Really do think about it because the other thing I'll just, final thing I'll say on that is when we're in the thrust of, you know, inner critic or imposter syndrome, it does uh, mess with how we think. And it can make us vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, we can be susceptible to talking to the wrong people. Mm. We can be influenced by the wrong people and uh, this is something I've seen actually lately in a few of my clients is that sometimes their partner or spouse or is actually not the right person to talk to so I know that might kind of sound a bit that's a story for another day too but sometimes your partner just actually doesn't get it yeah sometimes they get other things but sometimes they're not the right person to go home to over the dinner table and talk to and I know in a perfect world we wish that they were mm-hmm but we can't play in the perfect world scenario. We have to play in the real world and look at what's around us. And, yeah, they might come around one day, but that's something I wanted to put out there as well because if you think to yourself, gosh, like I, I really can't go home and talk to my partner, my whoever I live with, my roommate, what about this, then don't. Don't because <laughs> go and talk to somebody else yeah. and listen to your instincts. So it's super important and back to we can't pull ourselves out of this alone and uh, we shouldn't have to do it alone. And there's a lot of joy and learnings in letting other people help you. I know it's difficult because actually the final thing I'll say, Jess, for people listening is because when when we're in the midst of, you know, inner critic, as I said, imposter syndrome, chronic self-doubt, some of the deeply rooted emotions tied to particularly imposter syndrome are shame, guilt and embarrassment. It can be very hard for us to speak, hard for us to be vulnerable because we're so fearful that, you know, they might think that, oh, they really aren't smart enough, good enough. Like, can you believe this woman's a doctor? You know, whatever. We say all these critics down in critic talking. And we can feel shame. And then we can feel different senses of guilt over things that we did and didn't do. And we can feel embarrassment. And, you know, they're really hard emotions to feel. They, they take a deep, deep toll. So I can't stress the point about choosing someone that you trust and don't, whether you've known them for a short time or a long time, it's like, do I trust this person? whether I'm talking deeply about the actual inner critical problem or whether I can just talk to them about peripheral things, all talking is valuable. Yeah. I'm so happy that you touched on who you can go to because I do want to add one more question, which is what if you choose wrong initially? Or Mm -hmm. someone along that journey. So there was that intuition, but you thought, no, no, I'm going to give it a try. 
what would you say to the person who initially chose wrong? Don't beat yourself up because we don't always get it right. Mm-hmm. We don't. And so that's that's a really good question and I'm glad you just slid that in because remember we need to move away from self-blame. None of us are perfect and we're not. I'm going to tell you all right now, we're not going to get it right all of the time. In fact, just quickly, this year alone, and it, look, it's been, you know, I, I've had a few things going on in my private life as well. I lost my father in February unexpectedly. That's a whole other grief story. And there are some things that have happened this year to me personally that have impacted the way that I have been thinking. And those thoughts have come into the business arena. I'm just sharing that context so you all know where I'm going with this next bit. So there are some people who have come into my life or sort of decisions I had to make on people. And despite the intuition sort of being there or whatever, long story short, I got the decision wrong. And one of them could have been a really costly decision. It, it nearly cost me $2,000. I got the money back, but sort of look like it would have been a financially costly decision as well as emotionally, mentally, et cetera. But I knew and through using my own tools that in spite making three decisions, which didn't help the situation, you know, it was compounding, but I realised that I couldn't change. Like I'd made the decisions uh, luckily, I got that money back. But even if I didn't, I was resigned to the fact I might have lost that $2,000 because I took the pressure off myself. I no longer, like, I know I don't always get it right. I know there are things that will go on in life that will shift the pendulum. So I don't focus on what I believe I didn't get right. I focus on what I can do about it or do better next time to get myself out of that negative funk and to make myself feel better and to really just get back in the game as soon as I can. So please don't beat yourself up. I'm telling you now, you won't get it right all of the time, whether it's this initial decision of who to talk to or the next decision and the next decision after that. And I want to share something that one of my coaches, Susie Moore, whom I adore and have worked with for several years, she's a coach of mine, she's based in the US. Susie says that there is no such thing as a good or bad decision. There are only decisions. Even when I just said that, I still get chills when I say that. I, I, literally, I literally just felt it go up my chest, right? Yeah. Because it's all about the perspective. So I know your automatic negative behaviours, you know, the inner critic wants to make you default to self-blame, wants to make you feel like rubbish, wants that self-talk, negative self-talk to start going off. But I need, you know, to try to say, right, I didn't. You just literally have, have to learn to give yourself a pep talk. Whoa, I messed up that decision. Oh, my God, I spoke to the wrong person. I'm not going to do that again or I'm going to do my best not to do it again. We must look forward. Because you can't change the decision. This is why there's no such thing as a good or bad decision. There's only decisions. If you perceive you get it wrong, in inverted commas, well, then guess what? You've got another chance to make a different decision. You'll always get another chance to make another decision. We feel and we are conditioned that we can't change our mind or that we can't get things wrong or that we can't try again or that we can't make a different decision or that we can't find another job or we can't switch careers. We are conditioned. It's None of it's true. You can do whatever you want. Sure, it might take you a bit longer to do it. Sure, there might be some planning around doing it. Sure, you just can't quit your job tomorrow. Of course, there's these factors where you have to plan around. But you can make a new decision. So, again, the takeaway is uh, you might not get it right. Don't self-blame. None of us get it right. Focus rather on what could you do differently that you perceive as better or more suitable next time turn your focus forward because you cannot change the past and fear imposter syndrome inner critic thrives in the past they thrive in ambiguity they thrive in indecision because our brains are looking for certainty 
So when you move your attention to, whew, got that decision wrong, I'm really upset about it, but I need to move on and find the next person. When you shift your thought process forward, you'll take your brain with you, of course, and it, it has less likely than chance to default to the automatic negative. That's science, as you know, Jess. You won't get it right. Just take the pressure off yourself right now because none of us, like, none of us do. I, I don't get every decision right, but I'm confident that I can just make a new one and look for a way forward. Mm-hmm. That's where I think is a good place to be. So much gold in today's episode. And I want to say... And I wish you just keep rolling, right? I, I honestly, I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, man, so many topics that came up. I'm like, we need to have like part four, part five, part seven. Just, I'll just fly to Canada and we'll have a yeah. day. <laughs> we could run a TV show at this point, I feel like. <laughs> oh, no, I love this. I love this so much. Like, honestly, just... um. So, so many great questions. So thank you. Allison allowed the walls of perfectionism to fall around her and release her inner child from the barriers she created long ago. This set her free and allowed her to step into her full potential. As you can tell, Allison and I could talk about this topic for hours and hours, and you'll likely get a second hour of us in future seasons. I still can't believe that Allison and I met through social media across the world and have stayed connected. That is the power of social media and the internet connecting the world. Key takeaways from today. One, prioritize the areas that are in your control first before stepping into the uncontrollable. Here's the thing. You can't make others happy and you can't control their happiness. The only thing that is in your control is how you choose to react. Sometimes you can't even control the emotion that comes up, but you can control how you use the emotion and how you choose to take care of yourself. That makes it easier for you to step into those areas that are out of your control. Listen, you can be around people and help them to their happiness, but if they don't want to get there on their own, it is not your responsibility. You have to prioritize how you get to your happiness. Key takeaway number two, healing your childhood trauma will release you from perfectionism. This one was a doozy for me. I now call myself a recovering perfectionist. Sure, there are times where my old perfectionist ways sneak back in, but I am able to do more, think more, and be more because of my shift of unrealistic expectations towards being perfect, and what that meant to me as a human being. The ability to own your imperfections and be amazing are possible. Every episode will have a reflection question, and this is yours for today. Who are the people in your support circle or trust squad that you can rely on? When you have found your answer, send me a DM on Instagram or an email to info at drjessicametcalf.com. That's info at drjessicametcalfe.com. Thank you so much for joining us today and through this entire season. It has been absolutely incredible and I look forward to what season two will bring. Remember, when you hear your inner gremlin, ask yourself, Would I say this to a loved one? And if your answer is no, then it's time for a reframe. Speak kindly. You're listening.